Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Greetings, friends, to another important episode of the Feeling Film Podcast. Do not fear, for I am here to lead you into the new world of... <coughs> <coughs> sorry, sorry about that. I don't know where that came from. Excuse me. Anyway, I'm Patch, and with me, ready to save Gotham City and maybe this podcast while we're at it, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I was unaware that a podcast was in need of saving, so I feel like I'm having this epiphany in the moment here. <laughs> and that was a great Bane Cat impression, by the way, I have to say. <laughs> Bane Cat. <laughs> well, week two of our Batman v Superman celebration is here. And with it, Christopher Nolan's third entry into the Batverse, The Dark Knight Rises. If you want to catch up on our thoughts from the first two entries... You can check out last week's episode 248, where we talked about Batman Begins, and then go way back to episode 46 to hear us gush about the Dark Knight. Before we move on, Aaron, I believe you have some announcements for us. I do. First and foremost, I wanted to announce that our September donor pick has been decided. We wanted to go with a theme of Robin Williams this month, so we threw five films out there to the patrons, and they chose, by an overwhelming majority, Dead Poets Society. That's exciting. One of my favorites growing up. I actually haven't revisited this since my older teenage years, I would say, my young adult years. Yeah, so I remember it very vividly being one of two films, the other being Reality Bites, that made me the Ethan Hawke fan that I am today. And so I am hoping this holds up in a big way for me. Uh, looking forward to that. And our man, Jacob Neff is going to be joining us for that episode. So that's another exciting thing. He'll get to come back on the show and, and talk through that one with us. At the end of this month, we will also be doing our bonus content conversation for the month on Robin's Wish, the brand new documentary about Robin's life. And I'm not going to be surprised if there's some tears in that one. For sure. For sure. The other announcement is that I wanted to let everyone know the Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection is now available. It's in 4K. It's this awesome Ultra HD combo pack that comes with a Blu-ray and a digital code from Universal Pictures. The collection includes, for the very first time, the original, never-released, uncut version of Psycho, which I am personally very excited about checking out, and FF contributor Coles Davis has watched already and says is definitely a must-see. Universally recognized as the master of suspense, the legendary Alfred Hitchcock, you know, he directed some of cinema's most thrilling and unforgettable classics. This collection includes four iconic films, including Rear Window, which we just covered, Vertigo, which we also have an episode on, the aforementioned Psycho, which we also have an episode on, and The Birds, which I just watched for the first time a couple weeks ago and absolutely loved. And I guess maybe eventually we'll have an episode on that too. And again, they're all in stunning 4K resolution. Really, really great transfers. The collection comes in a collectible disc book packaging, and it includes hours of bonus features such as documentaries, expert commentaries, interviews, screen tests, and much more. Some of my favorite stuff, so I'm pumped to get this in my hands. To celebrate, we have five digital copies of Psycho to give away. Now, this is not the 4K uncut special 
version of the film. You'll still need to pick up this awesome collectible set in order to get that. But it is the original film, which is also amazing. And it is also in HD. So to enter, we're going to make it really simple this time around. All you have to do is email feelinfilm at gmail.com and tell us your favorite Hitchcock film. That's it. That's all you got to do. Email feelinfilm, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M at gmail.com. Tell us your favorite Hitchcock film. The contest will end and winners will be chosen on Thursday morning, September the 17th, and will be notified by email. So get us your email before then, and maybe you'll win a copy of Psycho. Good stuff, my friend, and uh, exciting to see who gets to take home those digital copies. All right, enough announcements. It's time to get into our conversation on The Dark Knight Rises. We will get to spoiler-filled content here in just a second. But as we always like to do on our show, we'll start with one more takeaways. Aaron, what do you got? Man, I struggled with this one, and for a good reason. It was a good struggle, Patrick. And I'm going to just kind of lay the framework here that I love the movie. And so everything about making choices when it comes to one more takeaways or connecting points or what to talk about about this film, it all is amazing to me. I finally settled on closure as my word look the dark knight may have the apex performance for a comic book villain of all time but i firmly now believe that the dark knight rises is the best batman movie we've ever had from start to finish all things considered the more that i watch it the more that becomes clear it is ambitious in a way that no other superhero film has ever been I can't recall a single comic book film that attempts to pack so much into one narrative and also accomplish it with such ease. There's a ton of story, and yet it doesn't feel crammed in or rushed. It is epic in scope, yet also extremely thoughtful and somber in the way that it explores Bruce Wayne's humanity and psychology. And it has the perfect mixture of gritty crime thriller realism and masked comic book character flair. It's just an incredible achievement as both a single picture to watch by itself and then maybe the most important thing for me in a world today, Patrick, where our series and franchises seem to never come to an end. This is the perfect closure of what I consider the best superhero trilogy ever put together. And that means a lot. It is also the most emotional film of the trilogy. I find myself teary at multiple points. In this, I find myself getting chills at multiple times during this film. And so unsurprisingly, I, I resonate with it the strongest as well. Good stuff. And, and I think closure is a great word. It definitely encapsulates the trilogy as a whole. And this one is a great little exclamation point to that. The word that I chose was will. And really, this could probably be considered one of the themes of the movie, which is about the will of each one of these characters not the will of the Wayne estate, you know, since it's been destroyed, essentially, where we're at in the story. But really, more than anything, it's about the drive of Bruce Wayne Batman, the drive of Bane, the drive of the city of Gotham as really a supporting character, and how that actually plays throughout this two-hour-plus movie. I always get kind of weary of seeing movies that go beyond the two-hour, five-minute mark, two-hour, ten-minute mark, when you start kind of pushing to 220, because you know there's a lot of story. And 
unless you're Martin Scorsese, you really have to be conscious of that as a creator because you want to make sure that you don't lose your audience. And I'm referring to the Irishman, the really long movie that should have been broken up into like an epic miniseries of some kind. But I digress. When I look at the way the story progresses and how it comes to a conclusion, it really feels like the will of Christopher Nolan and his creative team to land the plane, to get us to a place where we feel like we've gotten a complete picture of his Batman. And it's easy to lose sight of that when you have characters that become so iconic that you want to just continue to push their stories further and further and further. But I think that Nolan's vision was carried out in a way that was very successful. And I think it was definitely in line with what he wanted. I don't know that he digressed very much from maybe what he originally wanted to. I haven't talked to him recently or ever, so I don't know what his original vision was, but I really feel like there was a lot of confidence that was built into all three of these movies. And The Dark Knight Rises puts that really at the center of what's driving these characters, what's driving Nolan and the writers and the cinematographers, what's driving them? Well, it's getting us to a conclusion. And I think that on the whole, The Dark Knight Rises, like like you said, it really does finish off a series really well. As much as I love the Fast and the Furious franchise, I'll be grateful when we get to the final movie. And we'll look forward to its conclusion. Even though I always look forward to seeing what the next entry is, at some point you're like, all right, can we land the plane? Literally, figuratively, or whatever. And <laughs> you got to have a runway, Patrick. <laughs> got to have a runway that's at least 100 miles long to do that, right? But I think that there was a huge amount of success that went into this. And man, that's a hard plane to land because it's an iconic character. And he's already been through the ringer of film with the Tim Burton and the Schumacher editions. I think in... I also want to add, just because this, you just said this, and so it came into my head, but when it comes to closure, when it comes to being that finale, there is something to be said about how you can view the entirety of the whole differently once you know how it's going to wrap up and once it's finally done. This movie didn't get as great of a response as The Dark Knight when it came out, and for many, many years... People were sleeping on it, and it was very underrated in my opinion. But even I, there was an expectation going in 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 a way in which we were wanting to see a certain thing, and it was hard to transition in our minds, even if you maybe rewatched the first two movies before going to see this. But with some distance now, obviously, since this film came out, being able to go back through the trilogy, having seen them all multiple times, and really look at it as a cohesive whole story it feels different to me than it did seeing it that first night in the movie theater and so i think there's something special about that and when we get to fast and furious i expect the same thing to happen right when you and this this is sort of an unprompted or maybe a prompted a spontaneous opinion piece at this point for our show but i will say this i had huge expectations going into the dark knight rises because of how the dark knight made me feel in terms of like wow how can it be topped? And the thing is, with the performances that we always talk about, Heath Ledger, you almost put The Dark Knight Rises at a disadvantage. Because it's like, why would you want to complete it at this point? This is how I felt about The Last Jedi. I was fine. Don't give me episode nine. I'm fine with the way 
Star Wars as a mainline series ended there. Of course, we were going to get a ninth movie because it's inevitable. And what we got was something that was not going to ever live up to my expectations. And here's what happens, Aaron. Opinion only. I think when something doesn't live up to your expectations, there's this bitter pill that you have to swallow. And then you start nitpicking everything. When I was doing notes for tonight's episode, I was just kind of looking for some inspiration. And I did some Google searching and I ran across several articles on the 15 things that are wrong with The Dark Knight Rises. And I'm reading these things and I'm like, yep, that's probably true. That's probably true. But if this was The Dark Knight, you wouldn't have a list like that. Why? Because it was overwhelmingly positively received by its audience. And those nitpicks are looked at as just those things. Whereas something like The Dark Knight Rises, which, by the way, the circumstances surrounding that movie did not do it any good with the shooting that took place in Aurora. So going into that, you're like, okay, what the heck? And now coming out of it, you have all these things playing against it where, well, it's not going to be as good as The Dark Knight because, you know, Heath Ledger and everything. And now you get critics that's, that use that, that use Aurora as influences, whether intentionally or not, to now say, here is why it's inferior. It's proven itself to be inferior for a number of reasons, and we're going to give you tangibility so that when you go into this, you're not expecting very much greatness. Watching it for the first time eight years later, it's still not high on my list in terms of comparisons. I still think The Dark Knight is probably my favorite Batman movie because of all the stuff that goes on in it. But watching Batman Begins and then watching this elevates it to a place where I see growth. There's like a growth path that Christopher Nolan had planned where he starts, and I said this last week, he starts with a place of saying, you're going to believe that this guy exists in real life. And then we're going to amp it up a little bit. We're going to add some more characters in the Dark Knight. And then we get to Bane. We get that opening sequence. So let's go ahead and say this is the spoilery time, okay? Good call. This is where we get spoilerific, all right? So turn it off if you haven't seen this or you don't want to be spoiled. The rest of you guys enjoy the conversation from here on out. The opening sequence is just big. And it, to an extent... I think rivals the opening sequence to the dark Knight. still not my favorite, but you have this incredible plain sequence and you have Tom Hardy, who is almost unrecognizable in this role, talking with that crazy overly articulate British accent, almost sounding like a psychotic James Bond behind this mask, telling the pilot, telling the U S marshal or whoever it was, that, you know, here's what's about to happen. And from there on out, you're like, this is how big it's going to be. It's going to be Bane big. It's not going to be just boots on the ground. We're still going to have that. It's still going to be filled with practical effects. But everything you see from here on out is going to be a lot bigger than what you saw in Batman Begins. And if you jumped from Batman Begins to this, it would feel jarring. But you had this appropriate sequence of events that led to this point. You've got Commissioner Gordon talking about Harvey Dent. I joked because I didn't watch The Dark Knight before watching this for the show. And I was like, wow, <laughs> if I were someone who had never seen this, I'm like, who's this Harvey Dent character, right? Because he had such a big impact. But the movie starts out by telling you we're in this place where there's a villain that you need to pay attention to because he's about to do something incredible. 
And then as the story plays out, we find out kind of what his role is in the bigger narrative. We see Bruce Wayne making himself kind of go from scarce to coming out of the light and then eventually taking on the cowl. And I think all that plays into what Nolan wanted to do was to say, we're on a trajectory. We're on an upward tra trajectory and we're not going to stop until Gotham is saved. <laughs> and, and that's how I see it. I see it kind of as a visual like up and then a slow kind of fall and then kind of a steady conclusion as we get to the end of the film. And to me, that really does work. And I think you're right. Looking at the trilogy as a whole, it's a very effective trilogy. If you took any one of those movies on their own, you could say, yeah, The Dark Knight's my favorite. And then Batman begins. And then, you know, pfft, The Dark Knight Rises. But that's not fair because I think The Dark Knight Rises deserves to have the first two entries watched in order to get you to the place of understanding this world that Nolan has created, these characters that he's bringing in, and the reasons why. All right, so my op-ed piece is done. <laughs> I'm here for it. All right. Well, I wanted to start out the conversation officially by talking about one of the big themes. And this is one that kind of runs through the entire trilogy, and that's the theme of fear. It's very common. And I wanted to ask you how you saw fear being dealt with in this particular entry, and maybe more specifically how Batman and Bane use it to their advantage. Oh, man. So let's start with the opening plane sequence that you just talked about. It's, it's a great place to begin. And I think it rivals the opening sequence of the dark Knight as well. I, I, and I would give on a one-to-one -one fight, I'm going to slightly give it to the dark Knight as well, because I think the Joker is so well known that to make his entrance iconic and in a way like that is harder to do than it is when you're bringing in a character. A lot of people don't know who the heck this is. Patrick. That was part of the problem too, for this movie that it had to overcome is people were expecting the Riddler. People were expecting penguin. They weren't expecting Bane? What? This movie's going to center around Bane? Who the heck is Bane? But he is that perfect bridge, like you said, of this upward trajectory. And I kind of mentioned that in my one more takeaway about how I feel like this entry mixes that gritty crime thriller nature of the first film with a little bit more of that superhero-esque type of stuff. I mean, we get Catwoman, who's eventually by the end of this movie in her suit. We get Bane, who has a a little bit of a superhero or superhuman element to him. But yet Nolan has talked in interviews about how he didn't want to lose what he had been going for in this trilogy. So you really had to be careful with who you introduced from the rogues gallery. It had to be consistent. And so it makes perfect sense. But the way that he introduces Bane and just some of the, di the dialogue in this whole movie, I mean, the whole series, the whole freaking three of them, to be honest, but, it, so much of it sticks out. There are movies where when I'm watching them for the podcast, Patrick, I'm furiously taking notes because I'm like, that's such a cool line. And oh my gosh, I don't want to forget that. And, you know, he comes out right away and talks about fear when he's talking to the doctor after they initially take over the plane. He says, calm down, doctor. Now is not the time for fear. That comes later. And it's immediately right there, okay? I mean, like, from the very beginning. Uh, and I think that we as an audience, what this opening sequence does is tell us that we have to fear Bane. And that for whenever Batman or Bruce comes back into the picture, that he should 
fear Bane because it establishes him as strong and it establishes him as brilliant as well. And so we don't have to know much about him. It also establishes a, a level of leadership about that character right off the bat because his seemingly number two in charge stays. He's like, puts his hand on him. He says, sorry, brother, but one of us has to be in the wreckage. And the guy's like, have we started a fire? And he's like, the fire rises. And I mean, it's just all oh, the dialogue. And the guy just dies. Like he plummets to his death, like willingly, because Bane says, nope, somebody's got to be down there. And so I think we immediately go to a place of like, this is a dude to be feared. Okay. And then fear is probably, if you're going to have a singular theme throughout this trilogy, that's, that's it. Right. You know, Bruce is created, Batman is created rather for Bruce through fear. He is afraid of the bats. And so that becomes his iconic, his iconography. Um, he is afraid of losing people. So he wants to be hidden so that he can protect those that he loves. And it really does flow through the narrative. And it does, it comes in a big way here because I think we see Bane using fear to control in so many ways. Um, we see Bruce who is scared. We see a great conversation with Alfred where Alfred tells him, he, Alfred says, the city needs Bruce Wayne, not Batman. And Bruce says, are you afraid that I'm going to fail? And Alfred says, no, I'm afraid that you want to. So Alfred's afraid. Bruce is afraid. <laughs> Everybody in this movie is afraid of something. I look at all those components of the film, and what really stands out to me is the way in which fear is used as a tool for both Bane and Batman from Batman begins. We see him not just overcoming fear and dismissing it, but using it to his own personal strength. And that's personified by him being able to control the bats. I think you mentioned it last week as one of your favorite scenes is the moment when he's able to quite literally control the bats and, and then use them as cover and the symbol itself, the symbol is a symbol of fear. What Bane does is he almost uses the backside of fear, that you have to use the adrenaline. That thing that drives you, that fear, you have to know when it's appropriate. And he's right at the beginning sequence when he says, now is not the time to be afraid, that comes later. He understands that fear is a weapon. And that's what he does. He's using fear throughout the movie as a weapon to manipulate, to intimidate, and then eventually to destroy a city. And I think it's that fear that also creates loyalty in some of the people that he's around. We don't get backstory about his henchmen. We don't need to. What we want and what we get is seeing how everyone he's around that have been used to being around him respond to him. They're not mindless necessarily, but they are loyal. And I think that's different than having regular henchmen like we do in, let's say, the 1989 Batman with the Joker's henchmen. They're just kind of lackeys with guns. Whereas in the plane sequence, we see a guy who sees the value, even if it's completely manipulated, 
he sees the value in taking one for the team by sacrificing his life. So the will of Bane in that regard was carried out by that guy. And he does the same thing later on when he allows the prisoners to hear Commissioner Gordon's letter about Harvey Dent and how manipulated they felt. And so it creates this riot. But that riot is driven by a sense of fear. Like we're not going to lose what we have. We're not going to lose these rights that we have. And the chaos that comes from that is driven by fear, either fear that what we have is going to be taken away or fear that is going to be completely manipulating the people of Gotham. It's interesting to see how both of these characters embrace it. One does it as a means to save Gotham and one does it as a means to destroy it. Yeah. And, and then there's an element of self-preservation that runs throughout. When, it, when you talk about fear and you talk about staying alive, I mean, it's constant. You have there's a great scene in this movie with Ben Mendelsohn, one of my absolute favorite actors, and he plays such a perfect, like slimy villain character like he does in Ready Player One and so many other movies. And he's challenging Bane at one point. And the way that Bane just puts his hand on the side of Middleson's neck and he gives that very, very memorable line, do you feel in charge? And he's not actually hurting him at the moment. But he's got his hand there in a way that Middleson is terrified because of the reality of what could happen at that point. Um, the Scarecrow, I, I love that he has a cameo in this movie as well, and he brings back his own special brand of fear. He always wants to play into that, right? He he is all about creating a psychosis in people where they are terrified of something. It's actually one of the more humorous lines in the movie. I actually giggle every time it happens, but when he's got his little tribunal and He's sending people out to the ice and Gordon comes up and he's like exile or death. And Gordon's like, if you think I'm going out on that ice, you got another thing coming. So, you know, you know, you're going to have to kill me. And he's like, death, then death by exile. Right. <laughs> and he sends him out. Of the ice. And I, I literally laugh out loud every time. But it's because there's a fear involved. Like he doesn't want to just people to die. He wants them to be yeah. scared first. Right. Yeah. Uh, because you're going to be scared. You're not going to know when you're going to die. There's the fear of the soldiers at the end of this movie who, when Blake is trying to get across the bridge and he's like, let us come. And they're like, no, I'm going to blow this bridge because I'm afraid of what Bane is going to do if I don't. And it's, it's a self-preservation and it makes, I think fear for the villains puts regular humans into a point of decision-making that is uncomfortable and it doesn't have an easy win where someone could get hurt, where there's not going to be a perfect get out of this scot-free answer. And that it, it, it ignites them. Right. And, and it does. It tends to make people want to switch sides to get away from having to deal with that feeling. And the way that Bruce deals with it, of course, like you said, is he tends to use it as motivation to get stronger the scene in the pit is just everything about the pit is phenomenal I, I texted you tonight and i was like oh my gosh or this morning when i was rewatching it and i was like i got chills when this was going down but there's this great conversation with him in this old 
prisoner, and it's right before he's about to make his final climb. And the prisoner says, you do not fear death. You think this makes you strong. It makes you weak. And Bruce says, why? And he says, how can you move faster than possible, fight longer than possible without the most powerful impulse of the spirit, the fear of death? How can you do these things without being afraid that you're going to die? Bruce says, I do fear death. I fear dying in here while my city burns and there's no one to save it. And of course, then it's then make the climb. And he says, how, as the child did without the rope, then fear will find you again. Bruce says, what does that mean? And of course, we get the awesome chanting at the moment. And the guy says, rise. And it's all the theme, right? The theme is all about comes into play here with rising to face your fear. The Dark Knight rising out of the pit. The theme that we got that started back in Batman begins from Bruce Wayne's father, Thomas, about what do we do when we fall, Bruce? We pick up the pieces and stand up again and we rise. And that's what he does. He confronts his fear, but his fear is not personal. It's only about him in the sense that he has to preserve his own life in order to then be able to give of himself sacrificially to, to save his city. And so it is so much more meaningful and it's impactful because he is using that fear to propel him to do good instead of responding to that fear in a way that makes him passive and frozen and unable to act. It's almost like fight or flight, like, in two characters. Here's the beautiful imagery about that, Aaron. First of all, I think one thing that makes fear so thematic in this is that it's very exper- it's very experiential. The Scarecrow's example is one of those things. He's not just settling on killing someone. He wants to make them experience something where they suffer. The other thing you mentioned I think is really beautiful is that I don't know if it's irony or if it's just really great literary whatever but seeing how bruce well let me go back the people of gotham are driven by this fear from bane and what that does is it divides them they're all looking out for each other self-preservation and the scene at the bridge is a perfect example of that the fear pushed them to blow up the bridge as opposed to allowing those kids to come over because they were afraid for their lives, not afraid for the lives of the kids over here for the sake of the city, but self-preservation. Bruce, Batman, in climbing up that wall, the realization that you just mentioned is almost the complete opposite of that. The effect of fear on him, that experiential fear, allows him to realize that the fear that he has allows him to be able to save it's it's motivated to save the city to save everyone it's not about self-preservation so both of these groups bruce and the people of gotham are experiencing real fear whatever that fear is very personal very experiential and at the same time how they respond to that is completely opposite one man being altruistic for a whole city a whole city being selfish and trying to save each individual person themselves. And in the process of that, creating more chaos and destroying the city. It's really an interesting kind of concept where you can kind of argue, well, 
is altruism actually a better thing here for the sake of the city, even at the expense of sacrificing yourself? Yeah, I think Nolan's kind of hinting at that. But to have it come from a place like fear as a as opposed to a place like confidence or drive or a sense of guilt, that's a very Batman-y thing to do. <laughs> it wouldn't really work in a Superman story or in any other kind of superhero story. It has to be specific to Batman and Gotham. Yeah, it, it really does. And of course, I mean, it, it, so the thing is, it wouldn't be interesting to watch or entertaining to watch if there was no hope. And we both have this feeling where nihilistic movies sometimes are hard for us because we want to see a glimmer of it somewhere, right? And so to tie that in directly with the scene I was just talking about that I feel is so important to this concept of fear and hope, even though it's sprinkled up in many different places throughout the whole two and a half hour runtime. But like when he's getting thrown into the pit, there's this great conversation or I guess it's not really a conversation because it's a conversation that requires people talking back and forth. It's more like a monologue where Bane is giving him the speech and he says, you don't fear death. You welcome it. Your punishment must be more severe. Torture? Yes, but not your body, of your soul. And he says, home where I learned the truth about despair, as will you. There's a reason why this prison is the worst hell on earth. Hope. Every man who has rotted here over the centuries has looked up to the light and imagined climbing to freedom. So easy, so simple, and like shipwrecked men turning to seawater from uncontrollable thirst, many have died trying. I learned here that there can be no true despair without hope. And he goes on, of course, and says that awesome part at the end about how, and then you would have my permission to die, which is great because Bruce hits him with that backwards at the end. But... Point being, when we get back to this, there is no true despair without hope. That's true. I agree with that. And I think that Bane, in a sense, is pushing Bruce to the point where he is able to accomplish these things, right? If you did just kill him, this would be a lot easier. And yet wanting to punish someone and wanting them to feel the misery that you feel to be hopeless because there is no worse thing to feel because you think that's the the most awful thing you could ever do to Batman worse than killing him ultimately is your downfall <laughs> because if you just killed Bruce dude it's over you win you get to take down Gotham right Bane has suffered and so to him, death is not the suffering that Bruce should have to see, suffer. He should have to go without hope. And so it's so pivotal that Bruce finds that hope that he can accomplish this and finds that need to be the hope for the city in order to drive him to get out of that pit to go back there. And so I think that's like such a big moment for it, but it is everywhere, man. The... Batman's reemergence sticks out to me as well in a huge way because I feel like it's very, very epic. He's sitting in there as Bruce Wayne, and of course he's been dabbling and he's sort of thinking about getting back in the game, but he's watching the stock exchange attack happen and you can just see he's like, I can't let this happen anymore. 
and we get to see him riding that cycle through the dark tunnel after the hostage taker. And one of my favorite lines in the movie is there's these two cops that are following him, an old cop and a rookie or a young guy. Obviously, it's eight years since the events of the Dark Knight, so this kid was not on the force at the time. And the old cop, when he sees Bruce zoom by on the Bat Pod, the motorcycle's called the Bat Pod, by the way. I don't know if you knew that, but it's called the Bat Pod, which is, Alfred actually says it in the movie at one point, and I was like, oh, what is, I thought that was like a glitch in my DVD or something. Like, it was like Bat Pod, but anyway, it's called the Bat Pod. Okay. I watched the whole documentary about the tech of it. It's fascinating. Uh, but anyway, the uh, the old cop says to the boy, he says, boy, you are in for a show tonight, son. And throughout that sequence, you start to see in the reaction of the citizens of Gotham, the hope that Batman brings upon his reemergence. Even though they had been led to, you know, condemn him in a sense, hold him accountable for Harvey Dent's death, those who experienced him especially in this crime-fighting sense, no. And having him come back is hopeful for them, right? And it's kind of like, this whole movie is a lot like Les Mis, Patrick, in my mind. It is almost modeled after the French Revolution. And Jacob Neff was talking to me about this, so he would probably kill me if I didn't bring it up. But it feels that way. There's the underground with the cops being stuck, and there's this small group that is a resistance to Bane's army and the way in which he is taking over the city completely. They're operating in secret, and they're passing notes and trying to find a way, leading up to the point where there's this incredible battle that there's no other thing than hope that is to be honestly pushing them forward, Patrick, because... They literally walk into tanks. They, they walk into tanks. It's like, if you look at it logically, you'd be like, you're stupid. Why would you ever do this? But look back through history, and this is how it works. People rise up, again, the theme, with sticks and rocks and whatever they have to do to take back control of their lives from an oppressor. And it's so much mirroring that. And, you know, Batman gives them that hope and not only batman but batman inspires people like gordon and blake to then therefore transition and also bring that hope to the masses so it's it's like a trickle down effect that he has because it's not just directly him doing it and of course i mean you can see it viewers can't listeners can't see but like i've got my background up right now and i've got the awesome shot of the broken bridge with the bat signal that's above the ice where Scarecrow puts people out. And when he does that and lights it up so big, letting people know, like, he's back, I'm on your side, I'm going to fight with you, that's what it, it just, it inspi it's inspiring. And it gives them the hope to fight back and to believe that there's a chance. No matter what the cost, and there will probably be a cost, but there is a chance to not have their entire city blown up by a nuclear bomb. So let me expand on that part, the chance of someone not surviving. This is something that you and I talk about a lot, particularly with superhero films, is are there ever going to be stakes that are worth walking through a story valuable beyond just the cool factor? I mean, we got that with Infinity War. 
and it was very much satisfying to us. And I think that makes us sound really just really sadistic, like, yeah, people are dying that we love. No, 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 no. What we're getting at is that if you always know the hero is going to walk out unscathed, that he's going to save the city or he's going to save New York, what does that mean for the people that live in that city? What does that mean for those that don't have those superpowers? Here's what I think Nolan does so brilliantly is that he puts the power in the hands of the people and that Batman is powerful, but he doesn't kill everybody. There's that big street fight that everybody's attacking everybody and he gets into the middle of it with Bane, which by the way, let me just say this. I think the choreography of the of, of Tom Hardy just throwing his fists around is just fantastic. It doesn't have to be anything like martial arts, but he is just throwing around brute strength. And when he throws his fist into a wall and just cracks it, to me, I don't think that's a superhero. I don't think he's injected in any kind of like major like serum. I think that's just Tom Hardy in my head being Tom Hardy and just being that powerful. Something about that, the simplicity of Bane's ability to fight makes him that much more appealing, that he doesn't have to have a League of Shadows type of elegance, that he's very much about brute force, but smart brute force. Anyway, and I think when you look at The Dark Knight Rises as a whole, I would like to believe that part of Nolan's intent was to elevate Gotham City as a key character. He started it in Batman Begins by allowing Bruce Wayne as a character and his family to bring it up and say, hey, it's a, it's a city worth restoring. It's a city worth living in. And that carries over here by saying it's a city worth saving, but not by one man. Batman cannot save the entire city. And that's when we get that fantastic sequence that you mentioned where Matt Modine's character is leading the way with his little pistol <laughs> against these big O tanks and Batmobile knockoffs. And yes, it takes Batman coming in and disabling those things for them to attack all these henchmen, but it's not him that's actually destroying these people. It's the people of Gotham that are rising up and taking that on and people don't survive. People don't live. And Batman, at the end of all this, is no longer a part of Gotham City. He has hung up the cowl. What we see at the end of the film is just that, that his time is done. But what he wanted to do, that sense of hope, now lives in the lives of people in Gotham. This next wave of kids and adults that are growing up in Gotham, and they see the value of the city as a whole. This is what I love about movies that elevate cities. Like when you see New York being a central character, not a stomping ground for fights, but as a separate character in and of itself, Gotham City is that way. I want to see a Superman movie where Metropolis is that way. Because I think cities make the superheroes that, that are part of those that much better. They do. And I think that there's a very specific reason for that. This is very closely resembles a modern superhero kind of injected telling of A Tale of Two Cities. I don't know if you knew this, but at the very end, when Gordon is reading uh, 
uh, from a passage at, I believe it's, it might be a Bruce Wayne's funeral, but he's reading and he's, he's reading this. And this is from A Tale of Two Cities. I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss. I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts and in the hearts of their descendants, generations hence. It is far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And that is what you're saying. The city is what the hope has been bestowed upon. Not individual, not an individual, but the entire city. And the hope, the belief here, is that now the city has fought for itself and will collectively be able to rise up and, st and stand up against threats again that happen in the future without the need for one single man to be the trigger point because they have come together to do that. And so you're, I think you're absolutely right. I love what you're saying about the city being a character because it directly is stated by Nolan there through Gordon at the end of the movie. I think that was his intention. And so you picking up on that is huge. Yes, indeed. Well, in addition to the city being a central character, Nolan has once again expanded the cast of characters. We got our Harvey Dent Two-Face and in The Dark Knight. And now the cast is expanded with the addition of Selena Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, as you mentioned earlier. What did she add for you in The Dark Knight Rises? Everything. I, I <laughs> Listen, I'm, I, I am unabashedly in love with Anne Hathaway as Catwoman. I've read comments, in fact, on that stupid article you read about 15 things wrong with Dark Knight Rises, which I don't think I could find. One of them is almost always, oh, the worst thing about this movie is Anne Hathaway as Catwoman. Like, why would they have Anne? Those people, I, do, I just do not understand at, at all, Patrick. So, first of all, getting Catwoman into a Batwoman film, Batwoman eating Catwoman into a Batman film. <laughs> I mean, Batwoman's gay, so that could work too. But anyway, uh, that's, uh, well, I'm just saying, it, it, going on a tangent here. Look, Catwoman is essential to the Bruce Wayne story. And when we lost Rachel Dawes as a love interest in the second film, it made sense. Bruce, as a person, part of the fascinating caricature of Bruce slash Batman and the psychology of him is that he is, by choosing the mantle of Batman and deciding that is how he will live his life, he is denying himself forever, really. Well, I mean, he, in the end of this one, it kind of works out. But really, he's denying himself the ability to have this kind of love in this relationship. And Selena is such the perfect match for him. I mean, she has been for all of time. But she added everything in this to me. Honestly, man, it was like, forget the Katie versus Maggie debate we had last week because it doesn't matter to me because Selena trumps them in spades as a better match. And why? Because she's a match, Patrick, for both Batman and for Bruce because she connects to both of his personas. The opening scene with her sold me so much on her. There are... It's actually a mixture of that scene and I think it's a couple scenes later that I, I believe really just seal how incredible this performance was in my opinion she's there she's a maid she's gonna steal his mother's pearls 
and we get in there and she's like oh ha 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 and he's like hey you know this is an uncrackable safe and and she gets caught and all of a sudden everything about her complete demeanor changes she just goes oops and then ends up acrobatically flipping out the window right everything shifts like you you wouldn't believe it was a different or you could you couldn't believe almost that it was a different person because of the way that she had been handling herself and a few minutes later when she's in that diner with the guy who she's blackmailing and I don't know, congressman, I believe that has gone missing or whatever. Anyway, she ends up using his phone that she went home with. So we, we immediately learn like she's got like this thing planned out either that and, or she's quick on her feet and she's making moves very smart minded from, from way out. So she lets this villain use the phone of the missing congressman and SWAT comes rushing in and they're starting to shoot everybody in there. And she immediately falls on the ground and starts screaming bloody murder like she's a victim. And she gets out of the place. She's running to leave and she does it again on the street. And she like plays the victim again. And then she just keeps moving. She is awesome as both of those sides. And you get to see the side of Catwoman that is protective of this other girl that she's trying to take care of. Um, she doesn't want to let a man put his hands on her. Um, we could get into a whole other ethical debate about the fact that the girl was stealing from the guy, but why is the guy there in the first place with the girl? So like, you know, the, the not correct choices go deep in here, but the fact is she's trying to protect someone that is weaker. So she has that same drive that Bruce does within her, whether she wants to admit it or not. We get the classic Catwoman double crosses that is what happens in the comics all the time because this relationship is built on the fact that they she has that self-preservation bone and so when she takes him to bane and we think that she's on his side and she gives him up but she very clearly understands that there, there's a there's a feeling there like you can see it in the performance that it's not easy for her like she doesn't feel good about it right um, everything, man, there's the great way she delivers the line to him when they're dancing. And she says, there's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. And when it does, you know, you get to batten down the hatches because you and your friends are going to wonder how you ever lived so large and left so little for the rest of us. And I think that that resonates with him, man. I think she has a way of getting through to his soul that others have not. And of course, you get epic fight scenes between the two of them when they're on the rooftop and he gives her the no guns rule and she's so upset. <laughs> she's like, she's almost like a little kid. She's like, what? Why? Which comes back to play in brilliant writing and hilarity at the end when she rolls in on the bat pod and kills Bane, by the way, to save his life with the little cannons. And she, <laughs> and she gives him that line about the whole no guns thing. I'm not sure that I feel that strongly about that as you do. <laughs> and so there's just all this great dialogue uh, between them and such a, you know, if the movie wasn't two and a half hours long, Patrick, there wouldn't be room for them to meet and go through the levels of relationship building that they do on a personal Bruce and Selena level and also on a Batwoman and basically the creation of Catwoman uh, level. And he trusts her. He believes in her. He has hope. In her, he says, I'll admit I was a little let down about her betraying him, but I think that there's more to you. Um, she's just 
she's awesome. I, I think she's amazing. And that was one of my absolute favorite parts of this entire movie, man. I, I would, I cannot imagine it without her. And she is my Catwoman. So I know I've, I've been going on forever. I should shut up and let you say something. But like, she is my Catwoman. And I know many people are going to say Michelle Pfeiffer is my Catwoman. That's who I grew up with. Nobody's going to say Halle Berry, and that's fine. There are other Catwomen animated and, and the like that I've loved all along. But this is the character to me at this point. Well, I think she serves as an excellent foil to him, but almost like an anti-hero to who he is. So she's what she represents as a character is someone who represents what would happen if he went down the rabbit hole of making poorer decisions. And I think for him, her connection with him allows him not to save her, but to equally give her a perspective of saying we're the same person in a lot of ways. We have our demons and we see value in this bigger thing. The actions we take are not necessarily in sync, but they do lead to a more optimistic outcome. And I, I think that's what I enjoyed about her. I'm on the whole, I'm not necessarily into Catwoman as a character, but I will say that just like I love the Bruce Wayne as important as Batman concept, it plays itself out really here, just as much here with the Selena is just as important as Catwoman. And I think that's what makes her work with Bruce is the fact that they have that kind of foursome mentality, that foursome kind of approach is that we see four individuals and whatever mask you want to say they put on, whether it's the Bruce and Selena or the Batman Catwoman, the fact is they work for each other. They are not teammates necessarily like a Batman and Robin, but they are a kind of a power couple, I guess you could say. And watching them on screen was really fun to watch. It honestly took me a little bit to kind of wrap myself around, okay, this is Catwoman. I see the ears that kind of turn into goggles. That was kind of cool. And I had to make sure that I gave her the forgiveness that was due in that, look, we have elevated these movies beyond just a grounded Batman. We've given more tech to him. We've introduced Bane. And so seeing her on screen, while it definitely wasn't to the level of Tim Burton in terms of like that kind of extreme, it, it did feel a little over the top in the same way that I would feel about Christian's voice as Batman. But it's acceptable because of the fact that we're talking about superheroes. We're talking about someone who wears a mask and a cape and goes around the city doing his thing. I shouldn't feel surprised that there is a woman doing the same thing. So putting that aside and accepting that, I think their chemistry is fantastic. And, and he tells Blake in this movie pointedly, he says, wear a mask. He says, if you're going to be out here sit on your own, wear a mask because you it's not about you. It's about protecting the people that you love. So exactly. it's very understandable that she's going to do the same thing. And I personally, I, I mean, I feel you. I do. I but I love that the sexiness of the character, which appeals to me personally in a big way. But like, I love that it's 
drawn back by Nolan mm-hmm. as opposed to what Tim Burton gave us. And it's played in much more of an alluring kind of manner than sure. a straight sexiness. And, uh, but it's there. Um, and I, and I like the progression. So she goes from that great moment in the ballroom where they're wearing, there's a masked ball. And so she's got the face mask and she's got just a pair of cat ears, the same things that like, you know, anybody everywhere can wear. My kids have them. I have a pair of them. They gave us at the cats press screening, you know, like you just pair of cat ears and it feels like such a natural progression. Okay. Well, so you're, you're a cat burglar. So when you move on into making a mask, then why not use that as what you turn it into? Um, so I like how, and I, and I like that the movie didn't spend the time like telling us that like we didn't need to see that happen i didn't need catwoman's origin story you know in depth in that way uh as well but yeah i yes i'm sorry i just i love her so much (laughs) good i'm glad you do as a villain we have this guy bane that we have talked about very much regularly he is kind of the quintessential central figure beyond batman in this movie and He is definitely distinguished from the two characters before him in the form of Ra's al Ghul and the Joker. I wondered for for you, what particular things set him apart in this movie that made him different? And were there things that felt kind of similar with the other two villains in this series for you? Well, you've said the number one, and it's very obvious, which is physicality. First and sure. foremost, it's his physicality. He's strong as F, and he is classically known as the man who broke the bat. And thank goodness that we got to see Nightfall story play out. What an epic scene. The way that goes down with him monologuing the whole time. You know, it, it is, it's such a great moment. Just the way that he, not just that he's breaking Batman physically, but the point of that scene is to show Bane as that whole character. And Nolan gets that because this is a very smart Bane as well. We've seen him depicted in different ways throughout Batman's history. I think it's Batman Forever. It's either Batman Forever or Batman and Robin. I get them sometimes confused. Batman and Robin. It's Batman and Robin. So Bane is in the movie as a henchman to Poison Ivy, I think. And he is like just a big dumb lug. He's a henchman. He's a just go forth and, you know, punch things. But here, the brilliance of his plan that we see play out from that very opening scene in the plane crash uh, all the way to this point where he has manipulated, used Selena in order to have her essentially turn in Batman to him. I think. It's not just about beating him one-on-one in a fight. It's about the mental state that he gets Batman to be in, to get to gets Bruce to when that happens. The speech is epic. He's The whole time he's beating him to pieces, man. And you know it's coming, because we have seen as the film has been building, we know Bruce is eight years removed, right? He starts off by telling Bruce, says, peace has cost you your strength. Victory has defeated you. Dude, what a line! What a freaking line, right? Like, you beat the Joker. Why is that not amazing? That has cost him eight years later. Because now, he has not been trained. He is not ready. He is has no cartilage in his knees and can't go hella skiing. 
as the doctor tells them. I love that. And no, you can't go hella skiing. I would not recommend that you go hella skiing, Mr. Lane. And Bruce is like, oh, bummer. You know, I'm going to jump out this window now and climb up two floors to see Jim. But, you know, he tells him that, right? So we know Bruce is going to go into this and get his butt whooped, Patrick. I think as an audience, we are aware that he can't compete physically. So when, but we hope, <laughs> back to that hope, he's Batman. And so we want to believe that he could do that. But then not only does he go in with the physical limitation against Bane, who's much stronger, is he's going in mentally messed in the head because he's just been betrayed by Selina. And so that whole fight, the, the dialogue, you fight like a younger man with nothing held back, admirable but mistaken. Ah, you think darkness is your ally, but you merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I didn't see the light until I was a man, and by then it was nothing but blinding. The shadows betray you because they belong to me. And he says, ah, yes, I was wondering what would break first, your spirit or your body. This is a dude who is intentionally trying to destroy everything about him. The persona of Batman, the man, the humanity of Bruce Wayne. Like we talked about earlier wanting to torture him by taking away any hope and making him suffer in despair. he That's what makes him formidable. And honest to goodness, man, he's so close to being right there as good as Joker to me. Like, I don't want to get into that debate because it doesn't matter because they're both incredible performances. But without them, these movies are nowhere near as good as they are. Like, Batman needs them. So... I love that. And, you know, I think we talked about how surprising he was. I appreciate that. He fits better in this story to me than some of the other rogues galleries. The other thing that I think is really important about Bane is that there is a sadness and an empathy I have for this character by the end of the movie. If it, I never have that for Joker. So Joker's insane. I never feel sorry for that character. But by the end of this movie, when the exposition is happening and Talia is explaining who she really is and that she got out of the pit and that Bane was there and he protected her and he loved her and how he was excommunicated from the League because of it and that she actually didn't forgive her father for that. She hated her father for kicking Bane out until Bruce killed her father which then let her forgive her father because he was dead and shifted this whole thing in motion. And when Bane sheds a tear, I, dude, I'm like, I feel sorry for you. You're in love with this woman and you have done nothing but spend your life. You're not just a monster of a man. You have dedicated everything you have to your love of protecting this child which is that not what Alfred has done for Bruce Wayne his entire life? It's like, oh, boom, mind blown. I don't know. That's the kind of depth to this character that I think elevates him, man. And it makes him so incredible uh, within the context of this film. Context is everything. And Nolan does such a brilliant job of bringing a villain to the level of giving us a reason to empathize with him his methods we may disagree with. And to an extent, Nolan kind of reinforces that when <laughs> Talia tells him, don't kill him. I want him to see the destruction 
of his city and Bane before he gets shot up by Catwoman. He says, you'll just have to imagine the destruction of your city, you know, that kind of thing. And there's a consistency with that with regard to seeing Bane as empathetic, but also seeing him as a true villain because his motives are dual. There's a duality. His motives are to protect that who he loves, but to create chaos in the process. So there's almost like two different kinds of motivations for him. And if he can have both, fantastic. What I think is interesting about that scene, the backbreaking scene, is it's the one scene in the movie that I don't recall any music playing. You mentioned last week during our Batman Begins episode how music seems to just fill the entire film. I noticed, because I, I, I noticed when music is either toned down or eliminated altogether, that this fight between Batman and Bane had no music to it whatsoever. And I'm thinking, why would no one do that? And I think it had to do with the fact that we knew Batman was not going to win this. I mean, not just because he was physically incapable because he's been out of the game for eight years or however long, and that Bane was much stronger looking in general. But you combine that with Bane's monologue, and I think that Nolan wanted us to hear it as if we were one of the henchmen or as if we were Selena to understand that this is a very real thing. We need to experience the reality of it, not the theatricality of it, but the reality. And so when it actually happens, it makes it so much heavier and it leads to that fantastic back half of the movie where we see Batman rise and everything about that moment really reinforced what we saw later and it created a more dramatic and music-filled section of the movie where he comes back and then eventually he comes up to uh, back to the city and Bane is like, I thought I killed you. you know? And he's like, nope. And then they get into that just crazy good street fight. That's what I think I love about Christopher Nolan is he knows when to add things, he knows when to take away, and he does it with purpose. He doesn't just... Fill up a scene with something. And what I've seen through, I need to go back and watch The Dark Knight just for my own personal entertainment, but also just to see some of the progression. I love seeing how the practical effects, the choreographed fighting, is gotten better. Like in Batman Begins, it was good, but it was very much green. Like you felt like these characters, these actors were novices and probably more than likely needed stunt people to do their stuff for them. By the time we get into these big action sequences, dude, there is a lot that's going on here. And I was talking to a friend of mine this morning about the second season of Cobra Kai, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's this really fantastic sequence that takes place where there's a lot of fighting. Well, enough, it's Cobra Kai and Miyagi-Do or whatever, but it's done so well. It doesn't feel chaotic. It doesn't feel like you're just a bunch of people just brawling. There are cuts that you see of individuals fighting and the choreography is just completely sound. And the same thing happens here. Even in the chaos of that big mob scene, we're intentionally cutting to different people and it's clean and it's crisp and it, it still feels chaotic, but we're embracing it and we're kind of digesting it in a way where we're like, 
okay, I get this. And it's ironic that that scene where there's no music and it's just Bane and Batman fighting is really the thing that kind of kicks that off because we feel realistic in that point. And then when the big mob scene happens, we're kind of in that realistically as well, even with the music being added to it. Absolutely. Great point. And, and you're right. And it's and it's brilliant how this movie, again, is able to mix and marry that street level brutality right there in the moment centered on the physical hand-to-hand fighting and be beautifully shot and wonderful in that moment as well as hit on the big macro big budget war movie type sequences that we had in the dark knight that are so memorable and and in batman begins too so it really marries both of those and does them just wonderfully so there's this big reveal near the end of the movie uh, that Miranda, played by the lovely Marianne Cotillard, is actually the daughter of Razagul. You mentioned that uh, just a few minutes ago. And that, for me, when I first saw the movie, was completely unexpected. We had a lot going on in the movie with the different villains and subplots, and this really kind of came out of left field. What did you think about it? And how does it kind of work for you now on repeat when you see it kind of come to fruition? I'm really glad to hear that because one of the criticisms I saw repeatedly when I was reading about this film, uh, preparing for the episode, just because I've decided when I really, really love something, I want to read both sides of the criticism. I want to see what people who agree with me think, and I want to see what people who vehemently disagree with me think because it makes me kind of really evaluate why I feel the way I do and I like you did not see it coming the first time Uh, and I think that it's not telegraphed in the way that some people have criticized it as being and uh, yeah I I find it to be a real shock uh, within the movie and a brilliant one at that it does make it better to me again primarily because of the empathy that it creates for us with Bane. Some people have said that the movie would be better if you just kind of cut her out altogether. I understand points around that. I understand that the Bruce Wayne and I was going to say Talia because that's what I think of her as the Bruce Wayne and Miranda romance portion of the film maybe isn't that big of a deal. It's another, I think, understanding that Bruce can always be betrayed by his heart. And if anything, I think it strengthens the point of his connection with Selena Kyle and the ability to truly know who she is, both Selena and Catwoman, and for her to know who he is as both Bruce and Batwain. Bow. <laughs> I can't talk. That's good, to too. We can just start calling him Batwain because. <laughs> <laughs> Batman. And, uh,. And, you know, and Miranda is not that. She's someone who's a mask. She's not being her true self with him. Um, And, of course, she has a purpose to the story as well, I think, you know, with the whole clean energy power source uh, part and the the fact that she is going to control Wayne Enterprises. And there's a level here of importance in her character where he says, like, I'm choosing to trust you because I believe you will use this safely when you're ready. And, of course, she's lying the whole time and i think that it's really fantastic misdirection to be honest Uh, when she reveals herself to bruce 
and she's talking about her father and the fact that he killed him. He says he was trying to kill millions of innocent people. And I love what she says here. She says, innocent is a strong word to throw around about Gotham, Bruce. And I was like, well, that, you know, she has a point. And I think all good villains have a point. It's a matter of how they want to handle their version of justice or vengeance or whatever. I mean, at this point in the story, Patrick, it tells us in the beginning, there are like a thousand criminals in Blackgate prison. So Gotham has been pretty well cleaned up, you know, so what her version here of criticizing is not what we would consider non-innocent folks in Gotham. And she says, I honor my father by finishing his work. Vengeance against the man who killed him is simply a reward for my patience. Uh, and I love that because it really shows like, hey, listen, this she has put a lot into faking her persona and living in it constantly uh, in order to get to this point where she can finally reveal. And she says, you see, it's the slow knife, the knife that takes its time, the knife that waits years without forgetting then slips quietly between the bones that's the knife that cuts deepest and it's like how did, how much does that hurt like to think about this person has been plotting this and planning this and waiting to be in this exact moment with you for like eight years or nine ten twelve years potentially like we add into batman begins we're going all the way back to there right because this was a child this is a person who's grown up expecting this vengeance and again i love that the point here is that the characters understand each other bruce has felt this bruce understands what this is like because his parents were killed by someone so he grew up wanting it, it makes me flash back to that scene in batman begins where he's about to kill joe chill after the court room he's got the gun he walks out to the lobby He's trying to muster up the courage. It's when he's looking all dopey and like normal Bruce Wayne before he becomes, you know, super cut and goes on his little worldwide excursion of criminality. And he is going to shoot this man. He's going to a time to kill murder him style. And he gets killed by the mob before Bruce can do it. Saving him from whatever other path he would have gone down. It's so parallels what Talia is doing right here on a personal level on the on the personal revenge factor level not on the broad like let's finish what my parents started level but in a sense bruce is finishing what his parents started as well by trying to protect and take care of and provide for the people of gotham where talia's father is the antithesis of that who wanted to punish and destroy gotham it, it's beautiful i think it's beautiful and i think it all comes to a perfect head here uh, so I, I like her inclusion a lot. She's not got my favorite scenes throughout the movie leading up to this big moment. But Patrick, I feel like this big moment is worth everything and her being in the film. The other thing that I think is really cool, and it's just a side note, to be honest, is the fact that when Bruce climbs out of the pit, Bruce turns and throws the rope down to the prisoners so that they can climb out and escape. When we see Talia climb out of the pit, she does not do that. Instead, she's recounting the story and specifically tells how her father sent mercenaries down to murder everybody in the pit instead. And it was just like, man, it, it's right there. And, you know, it's just a perfect, like, 
the detail in this movie to really stay consistent about the the differences, the dichotomy between the characters and their actions and their drives is perfect. And and I love that little piece right there that shows the difference between how the two of them even come out of that pit, like with what feeling and, and purpose. So, yeah, I, I really like her. And she's lovely, like you said, Marianne. She, she is. And, and she adds a poetic flair to the movie. For my money, I, I think you could do without her, although you do lose that component of empathy for Bane because that story wouldn't exist. But I also know that she's kind of like the special special sauce in a Big Mac. I don't usually get it, but it, you know, it, it's good when you add it to it, but I could do without it. And I think that she's very consistent to the overall narrative in terms of being like she doesn't she doesn't stick out by any means. But she's not necessarily something or a character that when I think about the trilogy, she doesn't stand out. She's not an afterthought, but she's not necessarily necessary to the overall plot of the movie. She enhances those things, as you mentioned. She enhances Bruce's story about his parents being killed. She enhances the way in which he looks at the world as sort of an opposite vantage point. As you mentioned, he put he throws the rope down as opposed to her who pulls it up and then her, sends her father the message to kill all these folks. So it's fun to watch and it's consistent and it makes sense. But if you didn't include her, I'd be okay losing some of that empathy for Bane by not including her. So she works, but not necessarily required for my taste. But she is lovely, and I like seeing her act on screen. So there it is. All right, before we get into our connecting points, I want to talk a little bit about the ending. Because the film ends with some of these loose ends that we see being tied up. For instance, Alfred getting his wish. And as well as some new stories that could be told. Like so-called The Rise of Robin. <laughs> and I know that your one-word takeaway hinted at closure. But... I want to go ahead and ask the question, how did you feel walking away from this trilogy? And more specifically, did you feel satisfied or did you want a new series centered around someone like Robin? Absolutely not. And yet I love everything about how Robin, quote unquote Robin, is handled in this film and the way in which it ends. I mean, you call it the rise of Robin. You're right. The movie, the trilogy of Batman ends with a shot of Robin rising on the platform in the Batcave. That's the final shot of the whole thing. The brilliance of this is that it was not done to set up a Robin movie. It was done because it makes sense and because we can imagine, Patrick, we don't have to have that character go on to be Robin to believe and understand what that means and for that to have significance in this story and in this trilogy the fact that blake has been inspired by bruce wayne as a child when he was an orphan and now as batman as an adult the, there's a fantastic line that blake says that actually is like I, I had a woo boy moment about how connected it is with our current <laughs> kind of life 
this year and, and with the way the state of the country is, Gordon asks him at the end of the movie, he's like, can I convince you to stay on the force, essentially? And Blake says, I can't take it, the injustice. And I was just like, oh, oh, okay, all right. Like, this is a person who does not believe that that institution can get it done in the way that it needs to get done, which is similar to Batman. But also, I think, coming up through that, understands that there is a need for that organization as well to work with Batman. There needs There's a marriage of those two that can help deal with injustice, but there is something that he can do more outside of that institution and that system. And I just thought that was pretty like, oh, okay, wow, powerful. We're there. And uh, yeah, I, I love everything about the ending, man. Uh, you know, it Bruce dying, supposedly, is a beautiful, in a beautiful way, in a self-sacrificial way, to have little notes here and there that tell us what happened without fully doing it. I think Christopher Nolan loves a montage, and you love a montage, and this film ends with basically a montage where we get Lucius Fox learning that the autopilot was fixed, and so we get to know that Bruce did something to get out of the way. Um, probably the most illogical, in a, in a sense, moment of the film, if you believed he was in it, but because it's the autopilot, he wasn't ever in it, right? <laughs> and we learn about the Robin reveal of the hit. That was his real name. He's sort of like, uh, um, an, what's the word? Amalgram? An anagram? I, I can't remember what anagram. that is. Anagram? Some, no, anagram is like something to do with letters. Right. Um, I think it's Amalgram. But I, whatever the word is, he's like a composite. <laughs> There's a better word of Robin characters because like, Richard Grayson was an orphan and Blake has that part of his person. And then he finds out Batman's identity, which is what happened with Tim Drake. So he's kind of got pieces of different Robins. Drake, Blake, it. you know, there we go. Oh, dude. Yeah. Didn't even think of that, but yes, that's so good. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the fact that we, we get that moment of Alfred having to deal with actually thinking Bruce is dead, which is just awful. I'm so glad it was brief because if it had been much longer, I'd have lost my crap. And then we get the beautiful end where we get to see Bruce and Selena at the cafe and we get, yeah, we get the little toast by Alfred and the smile and he can walk off. And it makes me so happy because I needed that guy to have a win for his dedication for his entire life to Bruce and, and for it to pay off for him as well and so it's just beautiful um and batman talking to gordon it, yeah i'm just gonna this is part of the ending I, I don't know this is probably my connecting point i have so many connecting points i don't even know if i'm gonna have one when we get there but whatever part this is part of the ending that i think is so so lovely they have a special relationship batman and jim and gotham doesn't get saved without either one of them is the way that this works and so when he's talking to him at the end of the movie and he says a hero can be anyone even a man doing something as simple i'm getting choked up as reassuring as putting a coat around a young boy's shoulder to let him know that the world hasn't ended and when he's doing that 
he is we get this beautiful flashback to that scene in Batman Begins that's so just it's just a just a moment in a movie right it's not even highlighted or anything where that happens to young Bruce Wayne after his parents have died and Jim's just this beat cop and for that moment to tie in and for Jim to understand at that moment and be like Bruce Wayne and realize who he is and who he's been this whole time and just I, I don't know man there, there's something about that moment and how powerful that is that that's meaningful that's real life for us as humans as not batman anybody can be this person that's the beauty of the batman characters why i love him so much he's not an alien he doesn't have superpowers he has a lot of money so yes that's a superpower in many ways but anybody can rise up in their own way that's the message and the fact that to inspire that something as small as showing compassion for a young boy whose parents had just died can lead to big things later on it can have it can change the way a person develops the way that they emotionally grow over the course of their lives and the decisions that they make because of that forever and the cascading effects of how that could play out across the impact that they can have on the world around them and it's just it's beautiful it is so beautiful we all have the responsibility to change things we don't like about the world. We all do. And, you know, anyone can rise up. And the whole montage, it shows that. And Blake coming into the cave, beautiful, beautiful imagery. Uh, and I just, I, I get chills and I cry and I love it. It's perfect closure. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it too. And there was a twinge of me that really wanted to see this robin spinoff and i knew we weren't going to get it because nolan sets all this up to create a finality with bruce with selena with alfred and as we talked about before gotham is in good hands because it's in the hands of the people not in the hands of one man not in the hands of a harvey dent the regular guy that elevated himself to superhero status in this ends up being like a hero to the city but it also doesn't have Batman anymore. And what I, I thought was great about this is that it provided closure not just for our main character, but also for, for Alfred. And I said last week that I think Michael Caine is the definitive Alfred. I think he has the sassiness and the flair of a butler. But what we get in The Dark Knight Rises, and I'll just go ahead and kind of kick into our connecting points officially, because for me, Alfred is the ultimate dad stand-in where Thomas Wayne couldn't be. And I think it's because of a number of reasons. One, he was there when Bruce was born. He has grown up under the leadership, the tutelage, the guidance of Alfred. Alfred is not just his butler. And I don't think we get that captured in a lot of iterations of Batman. I haven't seen a lot of the Warner Animation Group stuff from, from the Batman verse, so I can't speak to that. But from the live action, I don't know that we've gotten a more authentic Alfred than we have in Christopher Nolan's trilogy. And 
that moment you spoke of at Bruce's funeral to see Michael Caine's performance in that moment to just say this remorse that he feels I wasn't there. I shouldn't have said goodbye. And then to see it pay off at the end where he gets to not only have that moment that he wishes for, but to also see that his surrogate son is alive and he's happy. And so all these kind of emotions and feelings come flooding into, I think, his heart and his body where he's like, I can fully live my life now. I've, I've chosen to live my life. Obviously, he's not at the mansion anymore. But that moment was was really impactful. But for me, what really made those moments impactful was his goodbye. And it's this quiet conversation in, you know, next to a staircase. And Alfred says, look, I can't do this anymore. I can't support what you're doing. Early on, I think it's just before Bruce goes out with his new duds, his like new legs and whatnot. The conversation ends with Alfred saying, I, you know, you're going out there and I don't know why. And he says, well, maybe it's because people need me. And I said, no, I think it's because you want to, you want to go out there. And he's just, just like Lucius Fox doesn't like Bruce using this crazy all seeing eye technology and is completely against it on a personal level. Alfred is concerned about Bruce. And I will always go back to this, that Bruce is just as important as Batman. And Alfred knows that it's been eight years and it's not just about his physical safety. It's about his mental health. It's about his emotional health. He has not dealt with these demons. And now he's going out here to fight a guy who is twice his size, who has not been out of the game for almost a decade. And he's basically saying, it doesn't matter how much tech you have. In fact, if you decide to go out there and you beat a portion of this, it's just going to reinforce what's eventually going to happen. You're going to get killed. And then we get to that conversation in the stairwell where Alfred says, it's over, essentially. I can't do this anymore. And they say goodbye. Again, I don't know who's going to die. I don't know what's going to happen. And we don't see Alfred again at all until the funeral. And if we didn't have Batman Begins, and we didn't have The Dark Knight, and we didn't see just like Batman and Jim's relationship growing over the course of these three films, Bruce and Alfred's relationship does the exact same thing. And to me, that's probably one of the most important relationships in Batman's history because this guy has been with him from the moment that he breathed his first breath to the moment where his parents were killed to the moment that he decided to embrace his fear and become the bat or the Batman, as Harvey Dent would say, to Batwing. What's that? A bat Batwing. Batwing, as he would say. Sorry. To the point where he hangs it up and then picks it back up and does his thing. So seeing that play out really just elevates that relationship even more. And it makes me appreciate the character, not only because of who he is as a Batman Bruce Wayne, but also because of the fact that Historically and satirically, he's known as, I don't need anybody. I can be on my own, you know, and the Lego Batman movie kind of 
Taylor said this, where he's like, I'm fine being on my own. But what we see is that he does. He needs Alfred, and Alfred needs him because they are they are a pair that have lived life together. And I just I love their relationship. So seeing that goodbye and then seeing that resolution, I think was just one of the most satisfying parts of the movie for me. Yeah, and for people who haven't seen it in a long time or whatever, I just want to read the dialogue because again, I'm a dialogue guy, and this is so good. And this is what Nolan and my favorite directors do so well is they they evoke an emotion in me both through the words and the music and obviously the character building that we've seen so far. And in that scene you're talking about, Alfred says, I've set your bones. I won't bury you. Maybe it's time we stop trying to outsmart the truth and let it have its day. I know what this means. It means your hatred and losing someone whose cries I have heard echo throughout this house. But it also means I might save his life. And that is horrible. And you're right. Like, it brings you to tears. Like, this is a man. He, Alfred is willing to sacrifice because he wants to do whatever it takes to take care of Bruce. And at this point, it's like, if you love something, let it go. He has to cut that cord in order to show him how much he means and not be complicit in this. And, and that's what makes the payoff what it is. Because without this moment, of course, without the moments that we get throughout the first two movies too, but without this scene that your connecting point is, that end, it doesn't have the weight. Because we've seen the funeral. We've seen that this is what came to pass. He had to go through this. And at that moment, we still thought that Batman was dead too. But to see him rewarded, it's, God, it's beautiful. It's faith. <laughs> and you know, it's faith being rewarded in a sense. But like, he's able to be happy and move on and, and know. And the fact that it plays out just like Alfred imagined, he's, you know, we don't talk to each other, but we know. You know, and I know. It makes this moment worth it. And they're, they're so connected and it's beautiful. Well, is there anything left in this movie that you could talk about that might be your connecting point? Because I think you've hit on pretty much everything. I don't think so. I mean, I legitimately think I might have talked about ever. I'm scrolling right now. I think I might have talked about almost everything. I love this movie and I appreciate you giving us a chance to go this long and just go this deep into it because I've, I've fallen so madly in love with it over the course of these last two viewings. And I mean, it shocked me to be honest, cause I didn't expect it. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that I would say at this point, I have anything else meaningful that could top what we've talked about so far. It's, it's great. The bat, the bat is effing sick. And that plane, I want to see, I would, it's just awesome. Like watching that thing, man, the way that thing flies, it's, it's incredible. So sure. There, that's the last thing. <laughs> we'll call it good. Go Batwing. We'll get t-shirts made. <laughs> Ooh, I would totally wear it. Well, that will officially do it for this episode of Feelin' Film. Next up on our Batman v Superman spectacular comes from uh, the Warner Animation Group. Batman Mask of the Phantasm. This will be the first time 
watch for me, but based on the track record of WAG and my co-host choosing it, I think I'll like it. I'll just throw that out there and think I will. And thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.